Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. You'll hear from a range of guests, including our clients and old friends. In a few weeks' time, Pam Betts will leave one of the busiest jobs in Queensland. Pam's about to retire after nine years as the Executive Director of Brisbane Catholic Education. That means Pam is in charge of an organisation that includes 146 schools, more than 12,500 staff and more than 75,000 students. So Pam knows a thing or two about engaging audiences and audiences on so many different levels. Fortunately, Pam has a background as a teacher, so she's used to communicating at classroom level with students and then beyond with the many audiences she's engaged over the years. Parents, teachers, head office staff, fellow education systems, unions, governments, it's a long list. It's been a while since Pam made her first foray as a teacher when her dad, Neil, a former Australian rugby union front rower, helped her set up a pretend classroom in the garage of their home on Brisbane's south side. We were fortunate that Pam joined us at our 55 comms offices to look back at more than 40 years of communicating across schools. We hope you enjoy this episode of Source with Pam Betts. Well, welcome to a special edition of our Source podcast because we have a very special guest and we're joined on her farewell lap, if you like. She's taken some time to drop in to the building. Pam Betts, welcome. Thanks very much, Michael. Great to be here. And it is your farewell lap as such. A, just a few weeks to go, but you're finishing up what is a very decorated career in Catholic education. How does it feel to be so close to the finish line after such an interesting career. It feels really surreal um, because the work's still going on and I'm still dealing with the typical issues we have at this time of the year, but I won't be there next year to see them through. So I'm handing them over and handing them over to really good hands. We've got fabulous leaders in, in Brisbane Catholic Education. But I think, oh, I'd really like to be doing that next year and I won't be there. So it's really with mixed feelings. Um, but I've been really blessed with 42 years in Catholic education, nine years in this role, and uh, it's been a great gift to me. And I've loved almost every minute of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> there must be such an interesting list of things you do. Let's talk about that. 12,500 plus staff. That's it. 75,000 or so students. Yes. 146 schools. Correct. There's no quiet days. There's no quiet day. Um, education, as all sort of these, the people service industries are, health, education, we're really people heavy um, and we rely on people. We rely on their goodwill. We rely on their professionalism. We rely on their initiative so that the work that we do for the young people in our schools, because they're why we exist, can, can continue and we can be the best they can be so we can give every child the opportunity to be the best they can be. 
So with that many people and that many young people between the ages of five and 18 and with the families behind them, there are all sorts of joys and sorrows that come with that. Um, People are people and their lives are complex and that often intersects with their work. And as I said, there's great joy in that, celebrating those milestones in their life. The Year 12s graduate this year, that's all, this week, sorry. That's always a mm. special time in the life of each child or each young person leaving school and their families. So those celebrations are fabulous. Mm. But there's also the times when families hit hard times and we wrap around them at those times as well as the happy times. Mm. Let's go back a little way and back to when you started as a teacher why did you decide to become a teacher all i ever wanted to do was teach um for as long as i can remember i wanted to be a teacher dad even set up a little classroom in the garage for me and i (laughs) painted a piece of of masonite or something with blackboard paint and i would teach the neighborhood kids i'm sure i drove them crazy um so i always wanted to be a teacher so when I left school, I went to St Elizabeth's at um, Tarragindi and uh, Our Ladies College at Annerley. I left school and I did a science degree at Griffith University and it was in environmental studies. And uh, I, we were only the third intake into Griffith University. So no one had graduated from Griffith the year, by the time I started. And um, so that was a bit courageous really going to a new (laughs) university but it was good for me it was small and I loved it I was a bit shy in those days I know you find that hard to believe now Michael but um, (laughs) but I was I was a bit of a shy child and so I did the science degree and I funnily enough I didn't go straight into teaching but I worked at Cath Ed so I went into Cath Ed as the planning assistant with all of the maths and geography that I had studied and I worked with Vince O'Rourke for two years and Vince became the director not long after I then went into teaching. So I worked with Vince for a couple of years, got a good knowledge of the organisation in those two years. Then I did a dip ed at University of Queensland and then I took up my first teaching position at St Mary's College in Ipswich. I do find it hard to believe you were shy because you're from such a well-known family in your local area. Your parents well known, of course, your dad being a former Wallaby. What was that upbringing like? I had a fabulous family. I was truly blessed um, and I never take it for granted. And, and when I see firsthand some of, the, some of the kids in our schools who really struggle with family issues, and that's hard on people, I, di- I didn't experience that. Um, I would just, my mother was a small woman, but very strong in character. My father was a large man. He was a front row forward, as you know, but he was a gentle man. Now, if you played in the front row against him, you wouldn't believe that. Um, <laughs> but as a dad, he was, um, there was a gentleness about dad because his strength was in his size. And um, so I grew up in a great family. But I was the middle child, so um, I think I just was really quiet and I was quite shy. Um, but I soon came out of myself, which was really good. <laughs> Our life was rugby. Um, I used to say we had two religions, Catholic and rugby, and they sometimes competed with one another on a Sunday. But Dad was in rugby and Mum was very supportive of Dad and his love of rugby and, uh, and the, what he gave back to the game because of what the game gave yeah. to him. Yeah. I'll tell you a little story. Dad went to St Lawrence's. Now, I found out Dad, they played league at St Lawrence's after, when I was quite old, actually. 
I hadn't realised that. So he played league at St Lawrence's and his family lived at West End. They were pretty poor and uh, Dad went to the butcher this day to um, pick up the meat for his mum. And the butcher said, how are you going with your, uh, with your football, Neil? And he said, oh, I can't play at the moment. Mum can't afford the boots. Um, and Dad's father died from when he was quite young from an appendicitis, which wouldn't happen oh, wow. now. No. So the following week he went back to the butcher and he, to pick up the meat and the butcher looked at him and said, hang on a minute, Neil. Went behind the shop, picked up a pair of boots and gave them to Dad. Oh, wow. So that he could play, go back to playing footy at school. Um, Good service from the butcher. Great service from the butcher. And, like, it's indicative of those times and that community yeah. at West End, I think, who are really close. So Dad play, went back to playing. He was in grade eight at the time, I think. And, but what he did was he shared the boots with his mate, who <laughs> I think was Nev Cottrell, actually. And so they'd play half a game each with the one pair of footy boots they had. Wow. And they both went on to play rugby for Australia. So Nev was, Nev was hooker and Dad was um, front row. So they shared a, a pair of boots mm. at school and they both ended up in the Wallaby they front did. row together. That butcher has a lot to answer for. He's, you know, he made a difference, really. <laughs> it was more than meat. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great Much story. More, yeah. So that was my family growing up. And mum came from, mum came from Tweed Heads and um, her father was also really involved in rugby league down there. Bit of an issue when she married a rugby union player, <laughs> but they soon got over that. Um, so he was involved with Seagulls at the coast and, um, and was one of the founding members of Seagulls. And he was on the local council down there as well. Mm. So mum's brother was a beach inspector down there for many years. So they, yeah. I had lots of characters in my, in my family. And, um, but we were a close family. We were close with our cousins, close with our aunts and uncles. Yeah. And I have wonderful memories of my childhood. And mum and dad both died in 2017 mm. and I still mm. miss them every day. Mm. They, were, they were just fabulous. And that classroom that your dad helped set up in the house. Yeah. So what was it like going from the, uh, the Betts family classroom mm. into a real classroom those years later? When you, you got in there the first time, mm. what was it like teaching in those days? It was pretty different. The first term of teaching is really tough and I say this to first year teachers because it is getting used to a whole different world. We've all been in classrooms. We've all been, we've all sat at a desk and been taught. But on the other side as teacher, it's a very different experience. And it is an absolute gift to be able to be a teacher and impart knowledge on young people and be part of their formation. So it's, um, you, I had 38 kids in my class, um, a science class, and I taught science and geography in that first year at St Mary's Ipswich. And uh, it was hot mm. in Ipswich in January. And so I had to learn the art and craft of teaching, which was knowing each and every student in your class, um, being able to address their particular needs in their learning, being able to prepare the lessons and the work for them that would enable them to grow from where they are now. And there's no easy way to describe that. That's a complex series of relationships to start yeah. with, a complex psychology involved in that, and just the process of imparting knowledge is not easy to explain. But it's something that but with teachers, we have, a, I think, an in, inborn gift mm. in that area and we grow that um, 
as we develop as teachers and continue to learn from one another. So we talk in this podcast about the art of engaging audiences and obviously in your current position those audiences are very broad but go back to that first classroom so you're in a non-air-conditioned classroom in Ipswich in Ipswich starting in the summer months yes. and you've got 38 kids I'm guessing some extroverts some introverts some from really solid family backgrounds some from broken family backgrounds how do you manage that? Do you have to get to know each child or are you able to do it in a, a more broad way? You have to get to know each child. Um, in, the, in, in that context of teaching, relationship is absolutely critical. And kids respond when you take an interest in them. In fact, adults respond when you take an interest in them. Um, from a Catholic perspective, every person is made in the image and likeness of God and for that... They deserve our respect. So relationships and respectful relationships is absolutely critical. Knowing your craft, knowing the content is critical and being prepared. But then it's also about how you are present in that room. Um, you can be having a bad day, but before you walk into that classroom, you have to get your mindset right because... Those kids deserve your best for the next 35 or 40 minutes. And whatever's going on in your head or in your life, you've got to leave outside the classroom. Some days that's easier than others. But mm -hmm. when you're in the classroom, you are there, you are present with them, and they are your world. Mm. And you've got 40 minutes to get through the next bit of work with them. And through relationship and through respectful relationships... In, in classrooms are engaging places where kids feel safe and where the right environment is there for them to learn and then they just fly. Mm. I'm always amazed by how well teachers remember students that they have taught over the years. Do you remember some of those students from your early years? I and do. if so, why do you remember them? I do. Um... You remember them for all sorts of reasons, for their story, um, for how well they learnt and their results that they achieved. Um, there could have been something in their family where they needed a bit of extra support. Um, it, there's no kind of common way that you remember them. Um, there's one, t one student I taught back in St Mary's, Veronica, she still works with us at BCE, so I still see her <laughs> and that's delightful. Um, I came across a student that I taught at St Peter Claver at a talk I was doing and um, this, this male and female with a little baby were coming towards me and I thought, oh, I wonder who these people are. And as he got closer, I recognised him. It was a, a, a boy I taught at St Peter Claver College and he got 25 out of 25 for his Year 11 maths exam in Term 1 of year 11 <laughs> and I was so excited I raced down to the Oval and told him um, <laughs> and he kind of remembered that as well so he went on to become an engineer and it was I was really humbled that night his wife said to me um, he became an engineer because of the maths that you taught him oh, wow. and you know they're really yeah. special moments when when you get that word or phrase that someone says it means a lot to a teacher to hear those stories back did you get some free advice from some students over the years? Uh, 
student at school, they're real, they love free advice when you're at school. <laughs> I'll give you a little funny one. Um, I taught this girl at Peter Claver and it was year 10, first day of school. And um, I'd had taught her for maths two years prior and she sat right in the front row. Really lovely kid, really nice kid. And anyway, after the lesson, she kind of beckoned me forward and I said, um, what's up? She said, really? You wore that dress on the first day of year eight. I think it's about time you bought yourself a few new things for the wardrobe. <laughs> there you go. I know. So they, they're, they're very free with their feedback. So you have to be a bit resilient when you're a teacher because kids can be brutally honest. Um, but, you know, that's, you want that level of honesty. Yeah. So are the kids of today, the ones in your BCE mm. schools now, are they different to the ones in your classrooms 40 years ago? Um, in their heart of hearts, no. Um, the world's a very different place, though, compared to 40 years ago when I was teaching at St Mary's, Our Ladies, St Peter Claver, and I also taught at All Hallows. Um, it's a very different world. Social media um, was not even heard of when I started teaching. And while technology is a, has made fabulous breakthroughs in all sorts of areas for us, I just wonder at the downside, um, the freedom with which uh, communication can happen um, is great, but when it's used for bullying and harassment and, um, and hurtful comments, particularly among kids, it's devastating. So we really need to spend more time on training kids to communicate respectfully because it's too easy to throw a comment on there and walk away from it. Mm. Communication's depersonalised. You couldn't do that. They wrote notes, mm. um, you know, to one another. Yeah. I'll give you a story about notes later on. Um, but it's depersonalised. So I think it, there's, the world just feels more complex to me. Mm. Um, mental health issues are mm. more prevalent in young people. Sometimes I wonder if we just didn't understand them well enough 40 years ago. Yep. But, but my sense was um, kids were more resilient and the world was just a little less complex. Mm. So you think kids were a bit more resilient? I do, yes. Mm. Uh, particularly at, um, you know, uh, in my early years, which is uh, further away, mm. but at places like St Mary's Ipswich mm. and St Peter Claver, um, those kids were really resilient and um, could stand up for themselves, yep. basically. And even if they thought a teacher was not doing the right thing by them, they would speak up. Um, so I think the world has changed, but inherently kids are the same. They still need support. They still think they're older than they really are, and they're, so they're mm. still vulnerable. Um, they still want to learn. I think the hope for them post-school is not as great as it was 40 years ago. It's pretty simple when I left school. Um, teaching, nursing, do law, mm. do medicine. It was pretty straightforward. Yep. It was easy to get into uni. We didn't pay to go to uni in those days. Mm. It was not long after universities had become free. Um, so it, there wasn't the choice and there wasn't the complexity. It, it just feels so different, but maybe I'm looking through old eyes. You know? <laughs> but you mentioned social media and maybe better understanding of mental health. How much has that changed the jobs of principals, teachers, and even people like yourself who might be 
in a head office environment, but going around to school so often. How much has that social media and the mental health conversation changed that? It's changed it considerably because communication is instantaneous. But also, people have an expectation now that they will know everything and that they will be told everything um, as soon as it happens. And sometimes that's not in everyone's best interests. Mm. People do have a right to privacy and even though things are published on social media, it doesn't mean that as a Catholic education system we have the right or we are legally able to share that information. So social media doesn't make it right and social media doesn't also make it correct. So it's a very easy medium for people to have a go but it's a helpful medium for communicating messaging mm. as well. Mm. There's always there's a plus and a minus every time you talk yeah. about it. Personally, yep. I do no social media. Yep. I just don't engage with it. Um, in this role, I wouldn't be able to use it anyway mm. uh, because there's you know there's issues, professional issues yeah. with even teachers using social media, and we sometimes forget that. But there's a plus to it because we can use it to tell the great stories about our schools mm. and um, it has wide audience um, acceptance when we do that and people do see it as reputable when yep. we use it for that medium. Yep. So it, there's every, for every plus, there's a minus. For every minus, there's a plus. So it's, I think it will continue to develop um, Facebook are changing what they call themselves. I'm not sure that makes any difference. Same song, seat, song sheet, different song. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is actually, I think, training young people to be to value respect mm. and to really think twice before you put anything out there. So, I guess in that uh, that transition as well over the years, we've had the change, I guess, in the way that schools may deal with parents because. Clearly, over the years, we look at an erosion of trusts when it comes to institutions, um, which I think goes hand in hand with the growing confidence of the consumer. So people who are, like you say, used to getting information quickly, used to giving their opinion through social media when they may otherwise not have had an opinion. So that dynamic with how parents view communication and also expect communication has changed. Mm. Can you talk a bit about that, what it's been like uh, communicating with parents, say, in this era compared to when you first were yeah. were teaching? I've been thinking about how I communicated with parents when I was first teaching. Um, to be honest, as a first-year teacher, you're so busy trying to learn the art and the craft of teaching in the classroom when you've got a class of your own. Um, it takes a couple of years before you're confident enough to really engage with parents. But, of course, I did engage with them. And basically it was through parent-teacher interviews. Mm. Um, parents would come into the school and you'd get to know them through that. We'd have... Um, we did musicals and all those sorts of things. And um, because there wasn't social media, I remember having some, you know, really good relationships with the parents mm. where they wanted that. Very different in secondary schools than primary schools. One person described it to me one time. I said, how can... You go to the primary school all the time, you don't come and see us. They said, sick of my job by the time they get to year nine, Pam. (laughs) (laughs) 
but I thought that was a bit harsh. <laughs> Lovely kid that she was, but I kind of was, you know, it was a yeah. kind of quite cute way of saying, you know, um, in kids want to be around you when they're in primary school. You get to the stage where they say, no, no, you stay five steps behind me. <laughs> um, you're an adult, and um, so yeah, it's different age groups. It um, makes a difference to the way parents communicate. But we had to do things to engage parents, and parent engagement wasn't um, the strategy that it is today and that parent voice and student voice has become really important important and so it should Mm. because it's really important to engage with those who we serve and um, uh, schools should not be closed off places it when i see images of england and america where they close off their schools and lock the gate when Mm. the kids are in i know that has to happen because it's safety but parents do have a place in partnering with us in the education of their children and we need to continue to look at, what, at effective ways that we can engage them. One of our schools uses social media really well. They take little clips of the kids in the classroom. Yeah. Now you've got to do media um, permission yes. and all that sort of stuff. And they'll send it to parents during the day. Par- well, most parents are working these days. And say, look, here's what's happening in the classroom today. thought you'd like to know. So there's really... Um, easy, quick ways of bringing the parents into the school, even though they can't physically be there. And we just need to be more creative with that. Um, formal groups that engage parents, the PNF, some schools have consultative groups of parents. In some schools for sport, they have groups of parents who manage or look after a particular sport. Um, and they're all innovative and creative ways mm. just to bring parents into the school. I find where something involves their child, that's the best way to engage Mm. parents Mm. because they haven't got time to come to school while their kids are at home because they want as much time with their kids as they possibly can get. So looking for for ways that they can involve through sports, a good one, where they can be there when their kids are also there Mm. is a fabulous initiative in schools. What about communicating with teachers? Because you've gone from being a rookie teacher Mm. at St Mary's Ipswich to being the head of an organisation with 12,500 staff, mostly teachers, Mm. throughout South East Queensland. What's it like with the teaching body over the years? Uh, You're dealing with teachers whose jobs have changed a lot since when you were there. Mm. How has communicating with them changed over that time? Well... We've got more opportunity to do it, even though it's not personal. We've got, of our 12,500 staff, probably just over 7,000 are teachers in the classroom. So um, you can't really gather them. We haven't been able to gather anyone in the last two years. That's right. So there's a cost to that. And while it builds culture when you get everyone together, it's a a lot of work to do that. Um, But I use video um, and post them as part of my message. Um, I do an executive director's message every week or fortnight on special occasions, the beginning of the year, the end of the year are really important times. But the best way is to get out there into schools and to take opportunities when schools are gathered together. So in January in the professional development days, there have been times when we've had a 1,000 people gather at the Gold Coast, for example. Yep. So I look for those and I'll frequently be invited to them. I'm always invited to those, which is I'm really grateful for. And I use that opportunity to talk with teachers. I always thank them for their work mm. because it can be thankless, um, thankless work. It's immensely rewarding 
Um, but I always thank them for their work and I always try to encourage them to continue to be up to date with, um, with the latest pedagogy but always look at what's evidence-based. Good ideas are not always what works in the classroom and, um, and encourage them to collaborate with mm. one another and support one another. Mm. So those sort of mediums um, really help to actually reach them uh, and I've, I've visited a lot of schools. I've been to all of our schools mm. at least once mm. in the last nine years. So that's great. And, and what about those individual schools? As we said, 146 of them. You've got schools spread across primary only, secondary only, and also primary through to, to prep to grade 12. So you've got the all three. You've also got schools that are in very high socioeconomic areas and schools that are in quite disadvantaged areas. So you've got this great mix and some of those schools in particular in the more disadvantaged areas just do phenomenal work and how they engage with their communities and how they bring the best out in children that might have uh, come from very different backgrounds overseas with different opportunities to what, say, other students in the BCE system have. What's it like working across that vast difference in schools? Every school is different. Every school is in a unique context. Every school uh, has a different story. Some are newer than others. Some are in new areas, like brand new areas, like Springfield, Yarrabilba, and they bring a particular context themselves. We always have to take into account context. There are some things that we can do right across our system. For example, evidence-based practices around reading will work whether you're at a school that has a very low direct measure of income, and that's a measure that the government used to say this is a school where, where the families there are not on high incomes. The lowest we have is 78. Um, and there are families in other schools where they are fortunate to be earning higher incomes. The highest um, DMI or direct measure of in income school for us is 125. We have a very large range with the average about 100. But those evidence-based practices will work wherever. But those schools that are at the lower end, they do need more resources to just support those children to engage with school. Some of the schools provide breakfast, for example. Additional guidance counsellor support. Um, uh, and those sorts of things just so that the kids are ready to learn in the classroom. The best thing we can do for all students is for them to, to develop a love of learning and a heart of hope. And if we can do that for every single student, regardless of their context, um, then we can make this world a better place. So with that, every school is unique, as you say. Every school is different. Um, I guess over the years, along comes the likes of NAPLAN, so standardised testing, and which becomes a real focus for media because it's an easy story for media because it's numbers and you can compare good with bad, if you like, and from a media viewpoint. But like you say, every school is different. How do you handle the likes of NAPLAN and a standardised assessment all round in terms of saying, well, um, you know, this school's different to that school and maybe the performance at one school, you'll take more notice of others. How do you go about it from a school system point of view with 146 schools? We start with every child. 
And every child, regardless of their background, can achieve and progress in their learning. There's no reason why a child who's in a school that has a 78 direct measure of income can't achieve to the same level with the appropriate support as a child in a school with 125. So it is about high expectations for every child and creating the right conditions for their learning, giving them the appropriate support and believing that each and every child can learn and achieve to the best of their ability and, and achieve very highly. Um, I've taught in a range of schools with a range of direct measures of income. The old measure was SES. And to be honest, my expectations of the students that I taught in those schools didn't change because I would expect the students in this school, and, and it did happen, um, to um, achieve as good as any school, any child in any other school. And um, that, that kind of mindset, that belief in kids and in teachers is absolutely critical. We had uh, things going along quite well, Pam, from uh, an educator's point of view. Schools were doing well. And then at the start of last year, along comes COVID. And everything you thought you knew about uh, going to school on a daily basis, the routine of it all, it changes drastically. And here you are retiring in three weeks' time and we're still talking about what might happen with COVID vaccinations and where schools sit. So it's taken up most of the last two years of of your career. Can you talk about COVID and in general its impact on the life of schools? I take my hat off to principals and teachers where they have ensured to the best of their ability that school is a normal place for kids. I've been, I was at a school this morning and I said to the staff there, it's been a tough two years and thank you for always keeping it the front of your mind the care and compassion and the continued learning of the young people in your care. I, I say to them, we socially distanced, we went to online learning, we masked up, we checked in, but you never checked out. And you stayed, your focus was always on the young person and them having school as a place where they weren't bombarded by COVID um, news articles and all of that, which I know was necessary but it, where they could have as normal an existence as possible when we were dealing with a, a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. So um, we were pretty lucky in Queensland. Well, we were very lucky. We did not have the lockdowns that they had in New South Wales and Victoria with extended periods of the online learning, mm. which we called Alternate Education Program. But it's still disrupted and it's still caused kids additional anxiety in some cases as well. So but when we did go to online learning, teachers used all sorts of ways to connect with kids and um, to, to give them a bit of light-hearted sort of break in amidst the doom and gloom that we were all experiencing. So some of them did um, videos of the staff at the school singing Crocodile Rock and <laughs> all sorts of things that they... just to give the kids a bit of a lift. Uh, one school, when the kids returned, they all, all the staff dressed up as superheroes and were out there as parents dropping them <laughs> off, welcoming them back because the Littlies were really scared about yeah. going back to school last yeah. year in May when we'd had that extended yep. lockdown. So, you know, they this, teachers are really creative and, mm. and they have the kids' interests at heart and um, they know what's going to make them feel 
that anxiety level level really drop when they come to school. And uh, so I, I just take my hat off to them. They're pretty amazing mm. at the lengths they'll go to. The school I was at this morning, they were preparing Christmas decorations and stained glass windows in the nativity scene with all this cellophane. I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> it's just amazing. So it's really important for kids that, you know, school can be a place where they can escape some of the the... the the trauma and the dramas that are happening outside the school gate. Would that COVID time have been the biggest communications challenge in your career? Because you had essentially to get messages quickly and clearly to everyone involved with Brisbane Catholic Education. So your head office staff, your school staff, your parents, your, uh, I guess, helping parents to inform children as well. How did you describe... I guess, that process and how challenging it was. That time between March and April last year, um, that was a really hectic time. Now, I actually got caught overseas, so I was trying to do it from afar and uh, with a group of principals, we were on pilgrimage and we had to return and then I had to go into isolation. So when I got home, it was sitting at the dining room table on Teams or checking communications pretty well constantly. But we had to stand up a team to manage it. And we had kind of, you know, the war room, dare I say, um, where that was almost 24-7 dealing with that. We always followed the directions of the government um, and we stuck by that. But, and it, through no fault of their own, um, the information changed frequently. Mm. And keeping ahead of that and sending out a communication and then having to send out a correction to that communication because new information became available was really tricky. So you just had to keep on top of it constantly. Um, we got information from the government through the QCEC and um, the people who worked there in this area were just outstanding as well. So we had the whole chain of information going, but you have to set up a team dedicated to doing this with their roles as to who does what. So it needs to be a well-oiled machine. We're blessed with expertise um, in this whole area so that we can manage it. But it was hard and I take my hat off to all those who really did the legwork in that period of time. We spoke before about with parents and communicating with them and some of that erosion of trust over the years in the sense that audiences are not as trusting as they used to be of institutions. And one of those ones that's obviously had some challenges is the Catholic Church. But Catholic education doesn't appear to have had that same challenge in the sense that the numbers in schools remain very strong, new schools are opening regularly. Why has Catholic education remained popular with parents? For some reason, parents see the Catholic schools as somehow kind of connected but separate from the church. Um, I think when they're deciding about the education for their child, they know the value of Catholic education and they know the care and the attention that we give to their child in our Catholic schools. And we've been able to maintain that. So I think, and I hate talking about reputation and and sort of marketing terms in relation to schools because it is a partnership with parents and we want parents to choose the school that's the best for their child and we want to tell them our story so that they can make that choice. Um, we provide good education, we provide quality education and we also provide really good pastoral care. The reality is all teachers regardless of where they teach and 
who they work for care for kids. They're compassionate with kids. They're committed to their learning. Um, over, over the last nine years and over 42 years, I suppose what I reflect on Catholic education is we do it because we are Catholic, because of our faith. Um, that's the basis for the care that we provide. So we've got a strong moral purpose and a strong reason for what we do. And, um, and, and that has stood, us, stood the test of time and I hope it continues. I hope people continue to place their trust in us. And what about going forward from here? Things seem to change so rapidly. You'll be uh, going and putting your feet up on the beach in uh, a few weeks' time. But when you, you'll obviously keep an eye on things because you are so interested in what happens in education. What are those things that you'll be keeping the closest eye on in terms of, I guess, issues for educators in the years to come? One of the things I'd like to see, and I think what is coming, um, is our narrative. We talk about learning and we talk about wellbeing, so the mental health issues, anxiety. How do we make, and in our case, we add our Catholic identity, our Catholic story to that. How do we make that one narrative? How do we actually talk about those things? Because learning is our work, and through learning, we can build the resilience of young people because they get more confident in who they are and what they know. And they get more, I think it gives them more hope about their future. So it, we still talk about those two as two separate things. How do we actually bring them together so they're almost seamless? I think that's one thing. My other question is what will schools look like in 2030? Given the experience of COVID and the experience of online learning, what, are, what is learning going to look like and what will schools look like in 2030, 2040. I'll watch that really closely. Because the whole innovation around schools is starting to move. And, and how we can be work and provide young kids with great opportunities to learn. Um, and there's a whole lot of stuff. The, the commentary in the paper is there's all different commentators around this and how schools should learn and the new curriculum. But really let's put ourselves in the shoes of young people bringing our experience and, and our knowledge of education to that and how kids effectively learn with our eye to the future. Because we're preparing young people for their future, not our past. Mm. So how do we get that balance right mm. and how do schools serve young people? Michael Fullan, who's a Canadian expert in, in education, we did a lot of work with him in the last nine years. And his stats would say 30% of young people are disengaged from schooling as it sits at the moment. Um, people will dispute whether or, not, whether or not that's correct, but if we're disengaging one young person, we should look at that and do something mm. about it. So I think that engagement of young people in schooling and ensuring that we prepare them for the future um, is absolutely critical and schools need to be different if we're going to do that. What will you miss the most when you finish in this role? What's going to be the thing that uh, you, you miss the most out of education? Uh, I will miss the people and I will miss visiting schools and being in, in classrooms, talking to preps, because as a secondary teacher, I've just loved the engagement with preps. I talk to kids on assembly I, and when I go to school, I spend time in a school and um, because that presence there is really important, but that's what I would miss. Engaging with staff in schools, engaging in classrooms, 
um, and just engaging with the people who are part of Catholic education. They've been part of my life and um, the work they do every day is inspiring. I miss that. Some of those preps uh, call it as they see it, don't they? They certainly do. They certainly do call it as they see it. Um, uh, one little girl said to me one day, um, I was, we were lining up to go to a liturgy for the retirement of their principal. And I was chatting away to the preps and they were holding banners, you know, to say thank you to their principal. And uh, this little girl put her hands on her hips and looked at me and I looked to the one side, everyone was sitting down except me. And so I looked at her and I said, I really need to sit down now, don't I? And she had a really good teacher voice. She said, yes, <laughs> you need to stop talking now and sit down. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God. I said, I think you're going to make a really good teacher. So I scurried and got in my place, um, <laughs> as I was told to do. So yeah. The next generation's coming through well. Absolutely, absolutely. And what happens uh, next for you, Pam, after December 10, when <sighs> you finish? What happens after oh, that? Look, I don't know. Um, I'm finishing on December 10. I've got a couple of things that I'm interested in that I will do, but I am going to Stratty on the 11th of, of December, which will be great. Um, I did ask at an assembly at one of the schools I was at recently, 600 kids and I was primary school. I said, kids, I've got a problem. I'm retiring and I'm not quite sure what to do. Has anyone got any tips? So they put their hands up and I went round the assembly and one, one little boy said, sleep. That was a very good idea. <laughs> um, have a sleepover at, at SeaWorld. I'm not sure that means sleeping with dolphins, but anyway, we'll see what happens with that. Have a vacation. Spend time with family and friends. That was really nice. And one little girl was really keen. She had the hand in the air and she was going to tell me what I should do. So I went over to her and she said, you need to play bingo every Friday. <laughs> so I, and I, oh, I said, oh, that's a good idea. And I figured that there's probably a grandma in her family who says, I can't do that on Friday. That's my bingo day. <laughs> so I might investigate bingo, Michael. You never know. Well, Pam, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and enjoy the last few weeks of what has been a very interesting career. And we look forward to catching up down the track to talk about Stratty and Bingo and whatever else happens. Great. Thanks a million, Michael. Thanks, Pam. Thank you.